before we get started, if you like the podcast, wherever you're listening to it, whether on Spotify or YouTube, give a like and follow the channel. It helps really boost the channel, and I want to try and get more followers as we move forward. Now, the Thinking Long and Short podcast is brought to you by True North Market Research. Subscribe to True North Market Research's newsletter before July 13th for 50% off a monthly or annual subscription. The newsletter gives insights on the current market environment, gives trading and investment thoughts while providing humorous but meaningful market commentary for investors. You can subscribe to the newsletter at truenorthmarketresearch.substack.com. Sign up before July 13th for 50% off a monthly or annual subscription. This week in the markets, we had a lot of positive movements for a lot of U.S. stocks. The NASDAQ and the S&P were up four of the five trading days for the week, and the S&P and NASDAQ are now well off their lows. Even if you look at the more speculative stocks in the market, those stocks are well off their lows. The ARK Innovation Fund is now up, I believe, 27% from its low just a few months ago. And the stocks that have been struggling lately have been the more value-oriented stocks, particularly those in the Dow Jones. But you look at risk assets in general, they had a very good week. Now, we got a lot of economic data out this week, but mainly investors were looking forward to the week that's about to come up ahead because we get the June CPI inflation print on July 13th, Wednesday this week. Now, before I go into the market action that's going to go ahead this week, some of the economic data that we got, we got the U.S. trade balance, which came in right at about expectations. We had a monthly deficit of $85.5 billion, right on expectations, and it was much lower than some of the last prints. So we see a break is happening in consumer demand. We also see that break in the consumer credit numbers month over month that we got on Friday, those numbers we were expecting to get $30 billion of an increase in consumer credit. Instead, we only got a $22.3 billion increase in consumer credit, which is a very substantial miss. So it shows that a lot less people are spending money out in the economy. Now, why is that? Most likely, people in the economy are preparing for a recession. They're spending less money, right? A lot of people have been traveling recently, going on vacations, right? If you look at airlines, it's very hard to find an airline ticket available, especially if you try and book a trip only a few weeks in advance. So a lot of people in the past few months have been spending as they've been coming up with a lot of pent up demand that's left over from the pandemic as far as travel and leisure is concerned. But now we're starting to see that that's slowing down dramatically. And a big part of that is also that Again, stocks are down big on the year. Cryptocurrencies down big on the year. A lot of wealth that had been created on paper since the pandemic started is starting to go away. And we're also starting to see that Americans are draining down the savings that they had left from the stimulus in the COVID pandemic. So we see that consumer spending is starting to drop, but it's still uh, not dropping significantly enough to get prices to come down. Some of the other data we got on the week, early in the week, we got the JOLTS jobs openings report, and there are still 11.25 million job openings in the U.S., which is down slightly from last month's upwardly revised 11.68 million job openings. Now, the drop would be considered substantial if the openings weren't already over 10 million. 
So we still see that there are two job openings for every one officially unemployed person in the economy, which is good news for the labor market. Now, if we continue to look at the labor market, though, we also got average hourly earnings month over month, which increased by 0.3% as expected. And so we see that average hourly earnings are still not increasing as much as the cost of living, which is bad news for the consumer. And one of the other reasons why consumers are still taking on so much consumer credit to make ends meet. Again, we missed on consumer credit this week. 30 billion was the expectation. We only got 22.3 billion. However, 22.3 billion of additional consumer credit in the economy is very substantial and shows that Americans are struggling to make ends meet, especially in the lower, middle, and upper middle classes. We got the non-farm payroll numbers on Friday, which the first Friday of every trading week is the busiest Friday of the month because we get the non-farm payrolls. There we were expecting to add 260,000 jobs. Instead, we added 372,000 jobs, a big beat on the non-farm payrolls. So when this number, number was initially released on Friday, everyone's re recession concerns were basically halted because we see that the labor market continues to show signs of strength. Again, we have 11.25 million job openings. There's still two job openings for every one person that's officially unemployed. And we just added 372,000 jobs, which beat the expectation by 112,000 jobs. Now, Unlike a lot of the recent non-farm payroll reports, this report was also good in that we added a lot of jobs in good job sectors. Now, most of the time when we get the non-farm payrolls, if we get a big number, most of the jobs that are added end up being added in leisure and hospitality, which are the lower paying jobs in the economy. And a lot of jobs are also added in the government. Now, in this report, we added 96,000 jobs in education and health services. We added 74,000 jobs in professional and business services. We did add 67,000 jobs to leisure and hospitality, but it was a smaller percentage of the entire non-farm payroll report this time. We added 57,000 jobs in healthcare. 36,000 jobs in transportation and warehousing. And notably also, we added 29,000 manufacturing jobs, which is an increase from the past couple months numbers in manufacturing. And those are good productive jobs for the American economy. And we actually subtracted 9,000 government jobs. So we lost 9,000 government jobs, which is a good thing because government jobs are highly unproductive and anybody employed by the government has to be supported by the taxpayer. So to the extent that government jobs shrink, the rest of the economy becomes more productive. Now, unemployment rates are still at 3.6%, so they were unchanged on the month. And again, we remain near maximum employment as measured by the unemployment numbers. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the labor force participation number is still sitting at around 62%. So we still have four out of every 10 Americans not working productively in the economy. Some of those are retired. Some of those are people who don't need a job because maybe their spouse earns enough income to support their entire family. Uh, but also some of those people are people that have been out of the workforce since the pandemic started. And since they've been unemployed for more than a year, they're considered discouraged workers and they're not counted in the unemployment numbers. So unemployment being at 3.6%, 
is still skewed way to the downside, the unemployment number in reality is much bigger than that. But we see that the unemployment numbers for now and the job openings for now are holding up, even though we see a lot of uh, layoffs from the technology space and the fintech space. We see a lot of job offers from banks and financial institutions are being rescinded, which is something that really hasn't happened since 2008. And one thing that's been going on is people have been getting job offers in the past few months and accepting those job offers. And then they put in their two, three, or four weeks notice with their employer. And then sometime within those two, three, or four weeks, those banks or financial institutions are rescinding those job offers because they see a recession coming. And so that's a very bad sign because, again, we haven't seen that really since the 2008 financial crisis. So you see that businesses are starting to prepare for a recession. And one of the ways in which you prepare for a recession is you have to either stop growing your labor force or you have to contract your labor force. Because if you're going to see a decline in your revenues, you have to cut your costs to maintain your profit margins at a lower capacity. So if we move into recession, a lot of these job openings that are available are going to go away. And a lot of these uh, jobs that are being added to the non-farm payroll are either going to stop being added or we're going to see a big negative number come in the next several months. Again, if we head into a recession. Now, speaking of recession, the Atlanta Fed revised their forecast for Q2 GDP again this week down to 1.2%, which would officially put us in a recession. And within the next couple of weeks, we're going to get the official Q2 GDP numbers, which will let us know if we are, in fact, in an official recession or not. But the estimates for GDP in Q2 keep getting revised down. And again, we see, especially in consumer credit numbers, consumers are spending a lot less money, right? $22.3 billion in, in consumer credit added this past month as opposed to $30 billion of expectations. Well, what does that mean? Someone's spending is another person's income. So if consumers are spending less money, then that means that corporations are bringing in less revenues, which means that corporations are going to have to lower their profit guidance for the future and earnings are going to have to come down. Now, I talked on the last podcast how so far the markets have priced in a multiple contraction, meaning that the earnings multiples on the S&P 500 have come down substantially since the height of the pandemic. The height of the pandemic, the S&P was trading at 36 times earnings. Now it's trading at about 18 times earnings after this past week. So the multiple has come down. But what has not come down has been the actual earnings of corporations themselves. And what has also not come down has been Wall Street analysts' forecasts for earnings in the future. So we see that a lot of earnings guidance being poor has not been priced into the market yet. If earnings start to contract from here, the market can go a lot lower. And this week coming up, we're moving into earnings season. Uh, On Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we have some big banks reporting earnings, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Citibank. So earnings season starts later in the week. But of course, what we're all looking to this week is Wednesday when we get the release of the CPI numbers. So again, we got some good economic data this week, which is showing that a recession is at least not on the horizon as much as people have been anticipating. 
But again, we're going to get the Q2 GDP numbers coming up in a few weeks, and we'll see for sure. But what drove a lot of the market action this week, again, stocks in general had a very good week this week. The lagging stocks were the energy sector. Oil finished the week at about $102 a barrel, but it was down very heavy on the week along with a lot of other commodities. But what drove the market action mainly is that stocks are seeing if we're going to have a recession or not. Because if we have a recession, that is showing that the Federal Reserve is going to have to slow down on its monetary policy to continue to hike rates and to continue to shrink its balance sheet. And the more likely it is we have a recession, the more likely it is that the Federal Reserve will pivot on their policy and instead of fighting inflation, are going to start to create more stimulative policy to help the markets. So I think a lot of the markets are starting to look forward to a recession despite this week's economic data. And so therefore, that's why the markets are going up, because they're hoping that the Federal Reserve is either going to stop its inflation fight or that if we have a recession, inflation will come down on its own without the Fed having to do a huge inflation fight. And so therefore, interest rates don't have to rise as much. So stocks can continue to go up. But I think a lot of this is very misguided. If we do, in fact, get a recession, that does not mean that prices will come down on their own. Now, there's a lot of talk about the CPI print that's going to come out in a few weeks. The expectation or or, sorry, this week, the expectation is that we're going to get a 1.1% increase in the CPI. Now, the last couple of forecasts for the CPI for the month of May, the forecast going in was only a 0.7% increase. For the month of April, we only had an expectation of a 0.2% increase. And if you go back and look at the past seven uh, forecasts going into a CPI print, the forecasts were lower than the forecast is going into this week's CPI. So we're looking for a 1.1% gain in consumer prices on Wednesday. That would extrapolate out to a about a 13% inflation rate for the year if you annualize it for 12 months, if the number hits 1.1%. So the expectation is that the CPI is going to be very high this week. Now, if we do, in fact, go above that CPI, you would expect that the markets are going to sell off heavily because the higher the CPI print, the more likely it is the Fed's going to keep stepping in to try and and ramp up its inflation fight. But I think with how high the expectation is set this week compared to how it's been set in the few months prior, it's likely that we're going to miss expectations on the CPI. And when with the one we got, again, we got average hourly earnings this past week. So them going going up only by 0.3% as expected, those wage price increases are not going to put as much pressure on the CPI for the past month. But also we saw again that consumer spending was down and a lot of businesses, a lot of retail businesses that have stocked up on inventory, again, a lot of them might be trying to sell that inventory off to get rid of it at discounted prices. And we also saw a lot of pressure on commodities prices over the past month. So it is likely to think that we might come in lower than this expectation on the CPI print. But we'll have to wait and see till Wednesday. Again, if the CPI print comes in higher than expected, 
the markets will probably give up last week's gains. If the CPI comes in lower than expected, the markets may rally because they'll look forward to a recession, which you would think intuitively is bad for stocks. But again, a recession means that the Fed does not have to work as hard to fight inflation in most investors' eyes, which means that stock prices can rise and get some relief from the heavy selling that occurred in the first six months of the year. Now, we also got the release of the Fed's balance sheet on Thursday afternoon, as we do every week. The Fed actually did start to tighten their balance sheet a little bit. And for the first time in five weeks, and remember, we've been in quantitative tightening officially for five weeks since June 1st, but for the first time in five weeks, the Federal Reserve actually did quantitative tightening. Their balance sheet actually shrank from last week for the first time in five weeks. So, But the balance sheet barely shrank at all. The balance sheet went from $8.91 trillion last week to $8.89 trillion this week. So again, the Fed did shrink its balance sheet a little bit, but that is a very tiny, tiny speck, a drop in the bucket for how much assets they're going to have to sell off the balance sheet to actually effectively stop inflation, contract the money supply. And there was a lot of a uh, lot of uh, inversions going on this week within the bond, bond market, very bad signs. Both the two-year and the 10-year yields inverted, which is a clear warning sign that a recession is coming. Another reason I think that the markets rallied this week, because the markets saw that flashing recession warning sign coming out of the bond market and looked forward to, okay, now the Federal Reserve can ease up on fighting inflation and start providing more stimulative, accommodative policy. And that's, again, why the markets are rallying. The only thing driving markets right now is, are we going to have a recession? If we do, what is the recession's effect going to be on inflation? And what are the long-term expectations for inflation moving forward? Is inflation, in fact, embedded in the economy and here to stay? Or is it going to go away if we have a drop in demand from a recession? That is the only thing that markets care about. And that is why this week is going to be a very important week moving forward because we get the CPI data and we also get on Thursday the PPI data, the producer price index. So we're going to have a lot to look forward to this week. Now, if you look at a chart of the dollar index, the dollar index actually got above $107 this week, which was a new 20-year high for the dollar in value relative to other fiat currencies. And if you look at a gold chart, which is basically trading in the exact opposite direction as the dollar index, gold got as low as about $1,735 an ounce this week. It's now down on the year. It's surrendered all its gains from the past couple of months. So we have 8.6% inflation in the economy as measured by the CPI. The highest inflation numbers in 40 years, officially, and the highest unofficial inflation that we've ever had in U.S. history. Yet the value of the dollar relative to other fiat currencies around the world is at 20-year highs. And conversely, gold is trading more like some sort of triple-levered meme stock ETF in the sense that every day it's extremely volatile compared to other currencies. And we see that it's been gotten so beat up over the past several weeks. So for some reason, equity markets 
you know, stocks are looking forward to a recession, which is going to bring down inflation. And gold is seemingly looking ahead to that same recession, which will bring down inflation. And currency traders are seeing that if we have inflation come down, there's no reason to own gold here because you don't want to own an inflation hedge if inflation is going to go away. So a lot of money managers, as seen in the action of the dollar index, they've been selling stocks because they're scared of a recession or possible rate hikes, and they've been raising cash and everyone is going into dollars. And, you know, if you look at sentiment, right, you can look at both the UUP and the UDN, which are the dollar uh, ETF funds to bet against the value of the dollar going up if you're in UUP and bet on the value of the dollar going down if you're in the UDN. Now, if you look at the flows in both of those ETFs, there is about eight times the amount of flows of money going into the dollar bullish ETF than there is the dollar bearish ETF, which is a clear sentiment indicator that one, we are heading for recession. So people are selling stocks and buying dollars in preparation for that recession because they think corporate earnings are going to come down, which means, again, the S&P 500 has to go much lower. But also, they don't want to they don't want to short the dollar because they think that the Federal Reserve is going to stop is going to fight hard to fight inflation or inflation is going to come down on its own, which means you want to own U.S. dollars, because if inflation does, in fact, come down in the U.S. economy, those U.S. dollars will get more valuable, especially relative to other fiat currencies, which are also facing their own inflation problems. Again, there's high amounts of inflation in basically every, every major economy around the globe and a lot of minor economies around the globe, with the exception basically being China. But if you go to Europe, Japan, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, there's a high amount of inflation in all major currencies around the globe, including the US dollar. And again, the exception being the Chinese yuan. Now, again, one of the things that we have to look at moving forward to see if inflation is actually embedded in the economy is we can look to commodities prices. And I think one of the reason one of the reasons that gold has been selling off heavily is because it's been following a lot of other agricultural products and commodities lower because the lower other commodity prices go, again, the more likely it is that inflation is going to slow down. And a lot of the commodities have gotten beaten up over the past few months. If you look back from April until uh, just last week at some of the futures prices performances in a lot of the commodities, oil is about flat since April. Again, it made a huge move up, but now it's made a huge move down. But we do see that the oil market has been very resilient. Again, we dropped to about $94 a barrel uh, last week, and it immediately rallied back to over 100 and finished the week, settled at about $102 a barrel. But so we're seeing that there's a lot of resilience in the oil markets. However, if you look at other commodities like soybeans, wheat, corn, copper, cotton, lumber, all of those commodities have rolled over. Now, I think the agricultural products are just getting a bit of a sell-off after a huge bounce from the Russia invasion Ukraine. And I do expect that agriculture prices are going to continue to make their way up from here and make a comeback from here. But if you look at things like copper, lumber, 
steel, those are very economically sensitive commodities, right? So you think of copper, for example, a lot of copper usage is in building new buildings, right? In electric vehicle production. If we head into recession and there's a lot less demand to buy homes, uh, especially new homes, and to buy expensively priced electric vehicles, then the demand for commodities like copper are obviously going to drop, which is why the best inflation hedges are not always copper or silver, because those happen to be commodities that while they can be viewed as a monetary asset, they are much more economically sensitive to what's going on in throughout the economy. And so therefore, even if you have high inflation, sometimes if, if that inflation is coupled with a recession, which would be stagflation, commodities like copper and steel and lumber uh, and silver won't perform as well as gold will because much of gold's value as, is as a monetary asset. And so that's why I've been continuing to recommend gold and not really recommend silver as much. And you know, so we'll, we'll see what happens with these commodity prices moving forward. But again, I remain very skeptical that the Federal Reserve cannot raise interest rates and somehow inflation is going to go away on its own. And even if inflation does moderate over the next few months, there is nothing in the long-term trend that shows that it's going to decrease and decelerate from here. Again, we haven't had a scenario where we've printed the many trillions of dollars that we've printed over the past few years. Because everyone keeps saying, well, you know, this recession would be no different from any other recession except the 1970s. If we have recession, prices will come down because demand will come down. But again, I, as I've been saying, supply remains con extremely constrained in all sectors of the economy, especially in the energy sector, which is why oil prices have been so resilient and have held up over $100 a barrel because there's no supply of energy to meet all the demand in the market. Even if demand collapses, there's still not enough supply to meet that tempered demand going forward. But as oil prices continue to rise, that makes the price of everything else go up even higher. Now, again, you know, we're, we're heading for recession. The bond market is showing that sign. We have GDP forecasts are coming down. And a lot of corporations have yet to lower earnings guidance. And so that means if we head into recession, especially with consumers spending less money, the more companies that report earnings that miss expectations, the more likely stock prices can continue to fall. And again, that's going to put downward pressure on the labor markets. And that's why this week is so important as we start in the earnings season later this week going into next week, because we have to see, are corporate earnings going to hold up? Or are the corporate earnings going to come down despite uh, forward guidance that companies had given? And also, what forward guidance are companies going to start giving this week and next week as we head into the next several months? Again, J.P. Morgan reports earnings this week. Their CEO, Jamie Dimon, has already lowered forward guidance and said that he sees a deep and severe recession on the way. Other bank CEOs have not said the same thing yet. And so that means that a lot of that bad news is probably not priced into the markets and a lot of these different stocks. But even if we head into recession, the problem is if inflation does not come down on its own, what is the Federal Reserve going to do then? Because if they continue to raise interest rates from here, 
And again, we see the action last week in the bond markets was very weak and the Fed barely sold any bonds into the market. And again, they're the biggest holder of treasury bonds in the world, supposedly about to sell all of them into the market. But the economy is so addicted to low interest rates that most people in the economy can't even remember what high interest rates really are. Now, I look at the, the chart of mortgage rates going all the way back to the 1970s. Currently, mortgage rates are anywhere from four and a half to 5.7%, depending on you know the situation and the type of the loan. And people are saying, wow, mortgage rates are extremely high. In fact, mortgage rates have doubled since last year. However, interest rates for mortgages are still at all-time lows. We still have mortgage rates much lower than what the historical average has been. If you go all the way back to 2008, mortgage rates were at 5 or 6% where they are today. So mortgage rates are not high at all. If you continue to move back, go all the way back to 2000, mortgage rates were closer to 10%. And if you go all the way back to 1980, mortgage rates got as high as 20%. But from the entire 1980s and the entire 1990s, mortgage rates were over 10%. That is what high interest rates are. Interest rates where they are today, even if a mortgage is at 5.5%, that is historically a very cheap interest rate. And again, that is showing me that Americans are highly addicted to cheap interest rates to make ends meet. Two, uh, one out of every two Americans own stocks and two out of every three Americans own a home. So if housing prices come down because interest rates keep going up, That is going to reverse a huge wealth effect that's been going on in the economy and further exacerbate what already looks like is going to be a pretty deep recession, which is why the Federal Reserve, if they have to continue to fight inflation and let interest rates go to on the Fed funds rate to 2%, 3%, 4%, that means mortgage rates are going to start going to 6%, 7%, 8%, 9%. The interest rates can go much higher than most people realize. And most people are very complacent about interest rates because they haven't seen, basically in this entire generation, interest rates go above 5 or 6%. But again, interest rates should go much higher than that. And we've never, and this is very important, we have never seen the inflation rate go above 5% and then in the same time period come back down to 2% or lower without the federal funds rate going above the rate of the CPI. So in other words, today, the last CPI print we got last month showed 8.6% inflation. If inflation is going to get back down to the Fed's target of 2% annualized inflation, history shows that the Fed funds rate, which is now at 1.5%, has to go to at least 9% in order to get that inflation to slow down, stop, and then return back to a 2% level. Now, it does just because it's never happened before doesn't mean that it can't happen this time. The one rule of financial markets is that the rules are always changing. However, if you are thinking, if you're in the camp that most investors are in, and you're thinking that inflation is going to come back down to 2% because we go into a recession 
and the Federal Reserve does not have to raise interest rates substantially in order to do that, then you are betting against thousands of years of history in financial markets. Now, I don't want to make my bets betting against thousands of years of history. So if you're making that bet, you are taking a very big chance that you are going to be wrong because of history. And so making the bet that inflation is going to come down on its own without the Fed raising interest rates means you're selling gold and buying dollars. You're in the dollar index or you're buying the bullish dollar fund. It means you're in a lot of highly cyclical U.S. stocks. It means you're in a lot of growth stocks. And I have never seen such a polarizing uh, dynamic between investors, between the bulls and the bears. The bulls, again, think that we're going to have a mild recession. It's going to be enough to slow down demand slightly to stop inflation, but it's not going to slow down demand enough to bring down corporate earnings. And then you have the bearish camp, which I would be in, that says if we have a recession, it's going to be severe and inflation's not going to stop. And so we're going to have stagflation and that's going to be very, very bad for growth stocks and the U.S. market as a whole because the U.S. market is mainly growth stocks. And even the value stocks in the U.S. market are have extremely high uh, price to earnings ratios, meaning that if we do have a recession, those price to earnings ratios are going to have to come much uh, down much further from here. But you don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. So again, just because something has never happened in the past does not mean it can happen this time. But you have to understand where we are. Interest rates are still historically low. If you're going to fight inflation, which is very hard to fight once it starts, that's why you never want to let the inflation genie out of the bottle. But if you're going to fight inflation, you have to get interest rates higher than the CPI in order to effectively get inflation to decelerate and come back down. The likelihood of that happening and us not having a severe recession from extremely high interest rates, which the economy is completely addicted to, is very little to none, in my opinion. Again, if interest rates go higher substantially from here, not only does it cost, not only does that bring housing prices and stock prices down, it also makes the cost of borrowing much more expensive, which makes it much harder for Americans to make ends meet. It means that your monthly service payments for your, your mortgage uh, or your uh, your credit cards or your car payments can go up because interest, a lot of those interest rates are adjustable to the the interest rate in the economy. And it also means there's a lot less credit available to go around. One of the reasons I suspect consumer credit month over month dropped this week is because there's a lot less credit available to go around now, right? So the higher interest rates go, the harder it is for someone to take out an auto loan the harder it is for someone to open another credit card, the harder it is for someone to go to the bank and get a personal loan. So as interest rates go up, not only does it become more expensive to take on more debt, but it actually becomes more difficult to get approved for more debt in the first place. So if interest rates go way up, again, demand is going to come down enough to cause recession. But in my view, it's not going to come down anywhere near enough to stop inflation because as we have recession, Less people are working productively to produce goods and services, which means even if the demand comes down, supply comes down as well. And that doesn't even take into effect the relationship that the U.S. has with the rest of the world as far as trade goes. The U.S. is heavily reliant on other countries, especially China, to import merchandise goods 
into the country. And in doing so, the U.S. imports Chinese goods and the U.S. prints money to pay for those goods. Without the supply of those goods coming in from China and other nations, the supply factor would come way down, way below demand, and then inflation really will get out of control. But it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, a lot of people have been talking about China lately. And I want to cover the KWeb, which is an ETF that is the Crane Shares ETF for China internet companies. And if you're, you're look, a person who's looking to get exposure to growth stocks in your portfolio, this is a place you should really look because a lot of the growth over the next decade is probably likely to occur in China as opposed to the United States. Now, a lot of people are scared to invest in China for many reasons, many of which are valid. One, there's been a lot of talk that Chinese companies are going to get delisted from the New York Stock Exchange and from the NASDAQ, which is a huge risk. Two, a lot of the accounting regulations in China are much different from that of America. So it's very difficult to read a balance sheet or a financial statement for a Chinese company and know that what you're getting is the actual statistics that are actually occurring. And in other words, there's been a lot of fraud in reporting for financial statements coming out of companies from China. And third, there is the uh, likelihood that China is in a real estate bubble and that bubble could pop in the next several years. But to me, there's a very key difference about where China is versus where the US and Europe and the UK and a lot of other major economies are in, in that the inflation cycle is the complete opposite. If you look at US and Europe and the UK, we are at, we have are experiencing very high levels of inflation, and we are at the complete opposite part of the business cycle as China is. China is one of the only economies in the world not experiencing inflation. And in fact, they are in a position to where even if they have a recession or if their real estate bubble bursts, that their central bank can come in and drop interest rates to stimulate their economy. They are, again, at a different part of the business cycle. So they have room to lower interest rates. And in fact, that's what they're doing in order to stimulate the economy. And as we saw over the past decade in the U.S., when interest rates get lowered, that is very bullish for growth stocks. And it's also very bullish for economic growth in the short term. And so I think you can get exposure to a lot of that in China. And again, I, if I had to own growth stocks, I would much prefer to own the ones in China than in the U.S. China is going to take over as the world's leading economy in the next decade. They have a lot of technological advances that they're far ahead of other nations in, especially AI, data and software. So it, you have to, you know, if you're going to look at growth stocks, you want to get exposure to the fastest growing economy in the world, again, would be China. The other interesting dynamic, though, is even if you're bearish on China's economy, by definition, you would have to be bearish on the U.S. economy because a lot of the Chinese GDP is derived directly from the United States consumer demand. So if consumer demand drops in the United States, then China is going to have a decrease in their GDP because a lot of GDP from China is derived from exporting go merchandise goods to the United States. And the other interesting dynamic that you have to understand is the United States has a lot of businesses 
that are U.S.-based companies, but they are operating a major portion of their business in China. Think of Apple or Tesla, Nike, Starbucks, just to name a few of a lot of major companies that operate in China, right? Apple produces mostly all of their products in China, either directly or indirectly through another manufacturing firm, and then those products get shipped from China to the United States. So what that does is even though it's the U.S. companies that are that are uh, building that merchandise in China, it's Chinese workers and Chinese firms that are actually building those products. So if Apple builds a bunch of iPhones in China and those iPhones get shipped from China to the United States, that is increasing China's sur uh, trade surplus and increasing America's trade deficit because that goods production is part of the Chinese economy. So the relationship between the United States and China is very strong. And again, if demand falls in the United States, you would expect that China has a recession because if, again, they're dependent on a lot of our spending. However, you know, if, if the United States has a drop in demand and so China no longer can export as many goods and services to America, they can either consume the goods and services themselves or they can export those goods and services to other nations like Europe, the UK, uh, or other Asian countries. So it's not necessarily going to cause a recession in the United States would not necessarily cause a recession in China. And a recession in China would almost certainly cause a recession in the United States. Because again, if there's less spending in China because of a recession, there's less people in China going to Starbucks. There's less people in China buying iPhones or Teslas. So that's going to drive down corporate earnings in America. But it's important to understand that both the Chinese and American economy are intertwined. And what's very interesting is that even though most growth stocks in the United States have gotten decimated over the past several months, since March, the K-Web, which again is the Chinese internet ETF, is actually bottomed in March and is well off the lows. That fund is actually up about 18% over the past month and a half or so, but it's still down 48% on the year. And again, a lot of that is because people are scared to invest in China or they don't want they don't want to own uh, Chinese traded uh, ADRs that are listed in the United States because those ADRs could possibly get delisted. But what the K-Web is now doing that's very interesting and provides a lot of value is they buy 70 percent of the Chinese stocks on the Hong Kong exchange as opposed to buying them on the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange. And so that gets rid of the risk of Chinese companies being delisted in the U.S. So it's an interesting place to look if you want exposure to China. And again, if you're a growth stock investor, which I'm not, but if you are, I don't know why you would want to ignore the fastest growing economy in the world, one that has a lot more people than the United States does, and one that is likely going to take over as the world's leading economy moving forward into the next decade. With that, I just want to cover... Uh, two other things that happened this week. Uh, over the weekend, there was a lot of protests going on in Sri Lanka, which is a Southwest uh, Asian uh, country. If you don't know it, it's very small. It's probably half the size of uh, most U.S. states. It's got a population of about 21 million people. But Sri Lanka is actually going through a sovereign debt crisis right now.
Now, Sri Lanka depends on tourism for most of their GDP. So during the COVID pandemic, as you could imagine, their country suffered worse than most other countries did as far as economic terms because nobody was traveling. So the country was already burdened by a lot of debt when that occurred. Now, the government's response was to take on a bunch of other foreign currency denominated debt to get them through the pandemic and to print a bunch of money. Now, it's become relevant because the past couple weeks, as other major fiat currencies around the world have risen in value against the Sri Lanka rupee, Sri Lanka is now about to face a hyperinflationary depression because the government tried to stimulate out of a recession that happened from COVID and instead created a scenario where they kicked the can down the road and now Sri Lanka is going to be faced with decades of impoverished people. And so people are outraged by this and they're protesting at the central bank there at the, uh, at, at the nation's capital. And the point being is that this can happen to any nation that wants to print a bunch of money and try and defy the laws of economics. You can do it for a small period of time, but eventually it always catches up to you. Now, look at what's going on with the Russian ruble. The Russian ruble is actually trading at a higher value today than it was prior to the Ukraine invasion. Why is that? Because Russia is one of the 18 countries in the world that represents more than 1% of the entire global GDP. They produce a lot of value, valuable products and services there that other nations, most particularly Europe, need in order to function. They have a huge competitive advantage, just like the United States and just like China, right? If you look at the United States, China, and Russia, they are the three countries that really have access to all of the resources to self-sustain themselves. So in other words, Saudi Arabia is one of the richest countries in the world because they produce, they're one of the biggest uh, oil producers in the world. But the only reason that they're extremely wealthy is because they're able to export that oil to other countries and trade for other goods and services. You can't eat oil. So if Saudi Arabia had was could not trade with anyone and they had to grow their own food, they would starve to death because they don't have the farmland to be able to grow agricultural products and raise animals. So they are reliant on global trade. And be, for that reason, global trade makes the entire world as a whole much more wealthy because nations can focus on their competitive advantages, produce what they produce best, and trade it to the rest of the world for whatever they cannot produce. Think of Taiwan. Taiwan is the leading semiconductor producer, and they, they use those semiconductors to trade with other nations for other things that they need. So like Taiwan imports a lot of the oil that they use out of countries in the Persian Gulf. Now, if Taiwan was completely reliant on itself to produce oil, they wouldn't be able to produce enough oil to get their economy to function. So free global trade and globalism is a great thing if there are no bad actors involved. The problem, of course, comes in is that not all countries get along and all countries work to serve their own interests. But the reason the Russian ruble is so valuable is because they produce a lot of goods and services that the rest of the world needs. 
Now, the dollar is considered valuable now because it's the world's reserve currency, but we don't produce much of what the world needs. So the only reason the dollar is valuable is because people can use it to buy products produced in other countries because it's the world's reserve currency. If you're Saudi Arabia, right, Saudi Arabia prices their oil in U.S. dollars. Why? Because if they sell their oil for U.S. dollars, even if they can't buy any goods or services from America with those dollars, they can buy goods and services from other nations with those U.S. dollars because other nations know that they can use those U.S. dollars to buy goods and services from another country. And that's what gives the having the world's reserve currency such a benefit is that for a period of time, you don't actually have to produce any goods and services in order to bring in goods and services like China. China ships us their goods by freight and, you know, they send freight ships that are full with cargo containers filled to the brim. We offload all the merchandise goods out of those cargo containers. We reload the cargo containers back on the ships that are completely empty and the ships go back across the sea to China to refill to bring new goods to America. Again, the only reason we're able to do this is because China accepts U.S. dollars because even if they themselves can't buy any goods and services from America because America doesn't produce any goods and services, they know that they can use those U.S. dollars to buy goods and services from other nations. And so in other words, it's a big chain letter Ponzi scheme and that we never have to produce anything in America as long as we hold the world's reserve currency status. But if we continue down the path that Sri Lanka just went down, at some point, that having the privilege of the world's reserve currency is going to come to an end. Now, obviously, because the U.S. economy is much bigger than Sri Lanka's, I mean, Sri Lanka's economy is nothing compared to the U.S.'s. It takes much longer period of time. But the question is, is how late in this game are we? Is the, you know, we've had the world's reserve currency for several decades now. And again, our economy gets weaker and weaker. Every year, our trade deficits increase. And every year, our budget deficits increase as well. And we don't have the capacity to pay back any of our debtors. So the run on the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries is inevitable. The only question is, when will that happen? Now, rotating back to a quicker story, and then I'll wrap up the podcast. Uh, Late Friday afternoon after the market closed, Elon Musk announced that he was going to be terminating the deal with to buy Twitter. Uh, and if you're not tracking on the issue, it's because after Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter, there was a, an issue regarding the amount of accounts that the site had and how many of them were fake accounts that were bots. And there really are tons of fake accounts on Twitter. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. If you have a Twitter account, you notice that most of the other uh, accounts on Twitter that you see are bots. They're fake. Uh, they're just used to affect the algorithm. And it's a big problem for the site in general. But now that Elon Musk is going to be pulling out of this deal, he has to pay $1 billion to back out of the deal. But think about how much Tesla stock he was able to sell a few months ago to raise money for this deal. And he sold that stock about 50% higher than where the market is trading at today for Tesla. So he made more than several billion dollars on that stock sale for Tesla. He only has to pay $1 billion to get out of this Twitter deal. And he got a much uh, much more branding for tw- uh, Tesla. And 
So this is actually going to turn out very good for Elon Musk. It may look bad to some people, but it's actually going to turn out very good for him. Kind of like when they announced the release of the Cybertruck and he threw the rock against the window and it was supposed to hold up, but it it shattered. They did that on purpose because it was just it was great marketing. They they got that video to go viral. Well, this is great marketing for Tesla because Elon Musk tried to do something good for the community. It didn't work out. He's out a billion dollars, but again, he made several billion dollars in selling Tesla stock to raise the money to buy Twitter. And so now he's much richer than he would have been had he held on to that Tesla stock. And of course, Tesla stock rallied in the after hours trading because now people are speculating whether or not he's going to reinvest that those billions back into Tesla or not. But again, now what do you look at for Twitter? Again, their platform is one of the worst social media platforms out there as far as a business perspective, because they have they have no idea who their customer is. If you think of Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, people share stuff on those platforms from their actual lives. So Facebook knows all of your interests. It knows everything that you like. It knows the products and services that you use. Twitter doesn't know that about 95% of the people that use the platform because most people that use the platform, they're just either tweeting out some news or they're talking about something going on in the economy, the markets and politics. Twitter knows very little about their actual customer. So it's very difficult for them to advertise to customers. So the monetization of that platform is much less than the monetization of, say, a Facebook, an Instagram, a TikTok, or Snapchat. And so their company is going to have a lot of problems moving forward. And the fact that when Elon Musk was offering to buy Twitter for $54.20 a share, that no other major buyers came in to compete with him, especially as he was threatening to end the deal, shows that nobody out there thinks that Twitter is worth much of anything. So there's going to be a lot of problems for this stock moving forward. And again, I don't really think the platform is worth anything because even though it provides a, a valuable service to the community, it no one's willing to actually pay for that service. And none of the advertisers are willing to pay to advertise on there. So this business is, is they, they should have come down and made this deal for much less money. Now the stock's going to fall much further in value. But to wrap up, Let's look forward to the CPI this week. We're going to see on Wednesday what's going to happen with the CPI, and then we jump into earnings season on Friday. So that's it for now. We'll be back next week.